Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Should I start it? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Anytime now. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Uh, how do we how do we start this thing? Uh, Hi, I'm all right. Bill yeah, yeah, yeah. Brewster. Welcome back to Value After Hours. I'm Bill Brewster, your co-host, along with Toby Carlisle and Farnham Jake, Jake Taylor. And uh, this week, I'm going to be talking about Chuck Ackrey's The Art of Never Selling and how it's gotten in my brain. And uh, Toby, what are you going to talk about? So a great Twitter stream tweet thread from Justin Mallory on what Buffett should buy, given all of the, he's got $128 billion in cash. What's he going to spend that on? Jake, how about yourself? I'm going to be covering Aswath Demardaran's revisiting the big market delusion. Uh, so it's going to be all about TAM. It's great to be back, folks. Right also, we got a, a, a healthy mailbag this, this big week. Big mailbag. Big fat mailbag. Right after Keep this. Keep it coming. And right as after this. <laughs> as a reminder, compliments to Toby, insults to me, and what goes to Jake? Uh, praise. Okay, there you go. Know. Mailbag. Mailbag. Right after this. Right after this. <laughs> Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Let's, let's start with uh, Asworth Damodaran. Yeah, close. Yeah. Damodaran, something like that. Uh, yeah, so he, in uh, late last year, he put out, a, I don't know if he called it a blog post or whatever, but, um, and the idea was that um, <clears throat> revisiting the big market delusion. So he he's worked on this before, talking about, trying to back into the idea of you look at these companies and people start you know drawing straight lines up into the right about revenue and income and if you take all these companies and sort of sum them up is there even enough revenue in the entire you know kind of economic universe for that to make any sense uh, and what he's found is in through multiple different uh, different scenarios that that's typically it doesn't happen in a lot of these. So, you know, he, he talks about the 1990s and e-commerce um, and how rapidly that went up and then exploded. Um, you know, you have online ad companies in 2010 to 2015 um, and then, you know, cannabis in 2018 and, and then maybe AI today. Uh, who knows? But um, what was interesting about so we'll start with the e-commerce one. In 1999, 60% of the IPOs were internet stocks. So you had just this absolute gold rush of people trying to, to raise money for internet stocks. And uh, <clears throat> more than two-thirds a couple years later of, the, of Bloomberg's internet uh, index were, were bankrupt. So two-thirds <laughs> of those of the companies ended up being zeros. Uh, and that's... You know, and granted, there were some that survived, obviously, like Amazon. But even then, like there was a ninety percent haircut there, and there were question marks about, uh, you know, if the cash flow might, if they were being able to get through difficult period. Um, so it wasn't 
Amazon as we know it today seems like such an inevitable, but maybe it necessarily wasn't. Um, so then online ad spending, um, 2015, Aswath came up that it would require roughly $520 billion of online ad revenue to get any kind of a reasonable valuation for these companies um, by 2025. So he's like he's trying to project out in the future. Like really, what is the TAM in 2025? Uh, so what's interesting? Like and at that time, the current ad spending for everything was at 545 billion. So not that far off of it. And at when that point, the internet. Quick. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Just real quick. When you say for all these companies, who, who is he summing up when he's? I mean, I assume Facebook and Google are in that, right? Facebook, like, Google, Twitter, Trade Desk, Roku, like uh, is all that thrown together? Do you know? I'm not sure. I think it was the more traditional okay. uh, online ad companies. Okay. Um, I don't think you include like – I don't think even like Amazon at that point yet or okay. uh, like Snapchat wasn't even around yet. So um, so at the time, $128 billion was – was the total revenue of the industry. So it basically like had to grow to absorb the entire online ad industry for any of the valuations to make much sense. Um, and today he did the similar calculation and it's something like 570 billion needs to be online ad revenue by 2029. Uh, so it, <clears throat> that one uh, is interesting because it's, it hasn't really popped like a, it's been more of a sort of slow balloon deflating as expectations have come down a little bit. Uh, maybe not so much for, for Google and Facebook, but definitely for Twitter. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it hasn't been the best run for them the last five years. Uh, cannabis. So God, the numbers in cannabis are so insane. But so you look at Tilray and they, at the, when they went IPO'd, it was a $13 billion market cap on $28 million of revenue. <laughs> that was almost and roughly the, like almost 25, the identity. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Roughly like 25 million of losses also on top of that. So it's just oh, a bunch of stoned compounder bros being like, no man, it's on the come. It was a just, similar ratio for beyond meat when it oh, went was public. Yeah. It was like a $13 billion market cap. And I think it was like $23 million in revenue. I had a friend that asked me about going long the beyond IPO and I said to him, I was like, look, man, you know, just paying this kind of multiple for sales and given the education that I think it's going to take, like, it's just not the game that I'm, I'm willing to play. And then it goes up like seven X or something. I mean, what, I don't even know what that thing did. It was crazy. It was just parabolic. And a couple of the guys that saw, how restricted the float was going to be and worked out sort of what the demand was going to be. This one guy, Denny Crane on Twitter, he sort of yeah. had that thing completely pegged. Um, I just didn't see the world that way. My, my mind wasn't looking at it that way. And my friend was just texting me. He's like, why'd you keep me out of this thing? And they added it to, to the value index as well. Did they really? <laughs> Jake at Economic said they're going to add it to the value index and he said it's because when they don't publish certain or they don't have certain metrics they just impute them from the rest of the industry and the and you know it's a food industry so they're like well it's probably going to be a value stock <laughs> oh that's crazy wow so tilray went up 10x within a couple weeks of the ipo and then 
totally blew up into, and I think it's like off more than 80% from there. Um, Was so, that float driven too, I wonder? Oh, I think it's just like magical, you know, pie in the sky ideas of what can happen here. Nobody's no, a lot of that, right? Nobody's looking at the market cap relative to the size of the business. They're just looking at the trajectory of the stock price and say, well, it's been up. It's going to keep on going up. I'll buy some. That's what, that's what every marginal buyer is doing. Momo, baby. It is. <laughs> it's pretty working. But, but that Momo has to be fueled by something. And that's, I think that's what the interesting part of what uh, Damodoran is talking about is that, so they have these, these four common elements in this. Um, number one is a big market story. So you have to have some like big macro potential. Like, you know, we talk about TAM. Um, number two, there has to be blindness to competition. So you, you basically have to assume that growth is not going to be shared by anyone else. Like you're going to be the only one that gets all of the, the growth. Um, and completely, you know, we like to joke, we call it uh, TESS, which is total eventual supply that you don't hear anyone really talk about that much. Um, number three was it's all about growth. So you ignore profits and bad unit economics. That doesn't matter. It's just how quickly can you get this thing as big as possible. Um, and then number four is disconnect from fundamentals, which obviously, you know, it's usually their negative earnings. So there's nothing you can, you know, you can't do a P on it. There's usually little assets. So there's no price to book to really do. Um, and they usually trade at just insane price to sales or, or revenue. Um, so <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, I found it to be an interesting paper because they, they share all these commonalities, but then the one difference they have is that they, like how they end. Some explode, some slowly deflate, uh, but but anytime you get that far out over your skis, it's usually pretty bad news for investors. They're impossible to trade, long or short. You can't be long because you eventually get dusted. You get what's coming to you, and you can't be short because before justice is done, you get your face ripped off. So there's no there's no easy way to trade that stuff. There's not you just gotta be away from it. Away it's from radioactive. As, as yeah, far away from stay the away. the blast. But man, it's hard it's hard to stay away. I mean, you know, I, I was talking about it is, right? I mean, if you're compared to an index and the and you know, SAS is what's ringing in my mind and I know that this is gonna upset people, but whatever, it's my podcast with you guys, so I can talk about what I want. Um, so, you know, I, I'm talking to a buddy out in Silicon Valley and he runs a firm out there and he said to me, he goes, man, it's crazy how much people are spending on engineers and a lot of us know how crazy it is. But the conversations that I have with other CEOs are we have to spend this because if this might be our only chance to get really rich. And in order to create the appearance that we're really big, we have to have a lot of engineers. And if everybody's thinking that way, naturally that's going to cause some inflation in the price. And I just, I don't know. I look at some of these companies and all the free cash flow or a lot of it is share-based compensation. And I understand why all these businesses should be worth a lot. And I understand why the growth should be worth a lot. But culturally, what happens to a people organization when you have to cut salaries or get rational or something? And I, I don't know. Like, I, I just feel like a dinosaur sometimes because I look at it and I feel like I understand it. And then I, I look at the numbers and I just can't get there. Did you a... see that news about, uh, about SoftBank pulling a lot of their term sheets? No, no. Well, that's a shocker. 
<laughs> they've been like stringing people along with promises like oh yeah yeah the checks in the mail kind of thing and <laughs> apparently uh actually no we're not going to do that deal after all when, uh, when i was still in undergrad i uh i knew a, one of the professors was a uh was a value guy who ran his own value fund and he said he'd done this he'd done this analysis on gold uh mining companies and he said here's something interesting about gold mining companies right when they go you they go through these um the, you know, that go through periods of time where the gold price is low, which means they really struggle because they can't make any money digging it out of the ground and selling it. But this is the unexpected thing. When the gold price is high, they really struggle to make money too because <laughs> engineers and all of the equipment becomes really expensive. Mm. So their margins are always squeezed. Like that's kind of a, that's an interesting insight. I always think about that in, you know, that's true of a lot of different things. As soon as there's a little gold rush in an area, you know, not not necessarily gold. It could be anything. Engineers in Silicon, you know, online SaaS businesses in in Silicon Valley. The inputs all get so expensive that it's hard to make money. You know, you just it's hard to make money. That's the that's the that's the nature of business. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at something like Adobe. I mean, that makes sense. I understand why people like that. Um, and you know, Microsoft has proven how how important a sticky user base is. I, I understand some of these bigger ones because I think that they can acquire some of the smaller ones. But the idea that everyone can land and expand without bumping into each other doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And the idea that everybody can just spend a bunch on R&D hoping to expand before bumping into each other, like just, I, I don't know. I just get uneasy about that whole thing. And I, I feel like, you know, if, we were talking about 30 different retailers with decent concepts that were just dropping new stores in every single neighborhood, hoping to acquire customers. People would be like, that's insane. But then you turn it into software and everybody just sort of forgives it. I mean, doesn't I, that kind of explain, I mean, that, that describes burger joints over the last like five years. Like it was just like, let's cram as many burger joints as we can into a square mile. Yeah. And I, Look, there's smart people on the other side of this thing, right, that that understand it better than I do. But it's just, to your point, Toby, it's something that unless I really can figure it out, I'm just going to watch it from the sidelines and, you know, hopefully I can deal with underperformance for a little while if that's what it means. Do you know the the unheralded investor in this in this area who maybe he gets a lot more attention now and I, I, I I'm a little bit behind the curve. I don't know, but I'm, I've only just started looking closely at interactive, um, Barry Diller. Diller. Oh yeah. So Diller formed that in 1995. I was just looking at their financials. Then they got $3 billion in cash sitting on their balance sheet. I, you know, that's a, that's a lot of firepower. I guess it used to be a lot of firepower. I, th I still think it's a lot of firepower. <laughs> trillions he's a, he's now, a, Toby. We're only a, talking trillions. Yeah, I know the T's. Uh, billions don't count. Used to be a lot of money. <laughs> I think he's like incredibly like that. The performance in that stock is phenomenal. The rate of gain that he has been able to create. He formed that in 1995. It's like 25 years old. That's that's astonishing kind of work that he's been able to create there. I'm going to study it for the next podcast. I've only just started looking at it. I don't have anything intelligent to say, but I'm kind of intrigued by what he's achieved there. A little bit envious. I think he kind of figured it out before everybody else did. And he made it through that dot-com 1.0 bust and has thrived at the other side. He so and Malone trade assets a lot. Oh, they do. Yeah, well, there you go. They do. And, and I don't know if you read like the Super Mugatu paper on dating. Um, I haven't, no. 
you should read that. I mean, if you're interested in IAC. I'm interviewing Dan on the podcast on Thursday, so uh, I'll have to read it before then. Yeah, you should. Uh, it's a very good paper. Um, I mean, the match spinoff, and then you've got Vimeo and I guess Care.com now. What else do you have in there? Um, oh, yep. Angie's Home Advice uh, or Angie's, Angie's List. List. Yeah, whatever that group is. I don't know. That's a really interesting entity. He's got uh, 128 I mean, brands in there, or that's what the website says when I looked at it. He's a monster. If you listen to his interviews, I mean, that guy Smart. is just awesome. Yeah, he is. I caught him on the morning CNBC morning show, the Joe Kernan, uh, the, the one that he's on a, few, a month or so ago, and he was he's brilliant. He reminds me like him, Malone, Sam Zell. Those are all guys that if they're ever if I ever see them on TV or an interview, I just stop what I'm doing yeah, and listen. One hundred percent. And you never want to be on the other side of, of them. You better know why you are if you yeah. are. <laughs> Zell, of course, did the um the era defining sale or the era defining merger in the last go round in two thousand seven he managed to roll out of was it general properties? I forget the exact name of what he had. Oh, did he? He sold it at the peak, biggest LBO, I think, ever at the time. But he was the vendor, which is what you want to be in a trade like that. Yeah. His audiobook is awesome. It's just his raspy voice talking the whole time like this, and he's reading you his book. I got to say, I love him because I was, <laughs> I, my wife and I, with our brand new daughter, when she was, this, when we had our first kid, we went out to a restaurant in Malibu for, for lunch, and uh, Sam Zell was outside in the parking lot with his wife, and I was standing out there waiting um, with my with my daughter in the in the stroller and Sam Zell came over and he wanted to talk and he was talking about the baby and he said oh she's really pretty all this stuff so I said I already I didn't let him know that I knew who he was but I already love him but I love him more for that yeah I'd be like you could have her just if you <laughs> spend an hour with me I just want to listen to you I you really should one. listen to his audiobook it's awesome it, it, then I bought this at the bottom and then I sold it at the top it's a great book I haven't listened to the audio but I've read the book it's fantastic uh, Bill, do you want to do uh, Chuck Acri? Chuck Aker? Acri? How do you say it? No, I don't. Acri, I don't yeah. want to do it at all because just it has really messed me up. Um, I want to talk the, about it because I think it's a super yeah. interesting topic. They never sell. Like they've come out with these two crazy pieces recently, right? What was the other? Like you, we had them at the H, Netflix HBO comp of a thousand dollars per subscriber. Oh no, no, that was no, that, that was, was Niagara. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That was I'm sorry. Niagara. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> no, but Acri, I mean, it's the art of never selling is what the, the paper is called. And it basically says once we own something, the only thing that we're looking at is degradation and business quality. So a multiple in and of itself is never going to be the reason that we sell. I think that the real possibility could be either that it's a theory that avoids a human bias and gets them focused on businesses that they want to own forever. And then they have said the benefits of this outweigh the cost of occasionally holding a great business too long or through a, a period of extreme overvaluation. Um, or I don't even know what the other logical reason could be because there's there mathematically is some multiple that it just doesn't make sense not to sell. Um, well, you've I mean, got you've like, got two issues, right? You've got the tax that you incur when you sell, and then you've got the opportunity address, cost. But it's, 
it's got to be embedded in what they're talking about. But you've got to reinvest in something, right? You can stick it back in cash. Maybe you are marginally better off holding a great company earning high returns on invested capital sustainably so over the next 20 years than you are sticking it into cash yielding nothing. Maybe. I don't know. Was Buffett better owning Coke when he could have got out in 99? I mean, I don't know. Probably in that entity. But, you know, if he was a small investor, I think he'd be out of that thing. So I, I talked to uh, one of my good friends, Rishi at Google, about this. Um, and he had some interesting perspectives. He sent me this paper. <clears throat> the, the author's name is Hendrik Bessenbinder, and it was a journal of financial economics. And the finding was that they looked at the CRISP uh, database, 1926 to 2018 or 17. Four out of seven common stocks did not beat the one-year treasury. So already more than half the stocks if in per when year? you buy and hold for the whole thing. So randomly you, selected in any given year or over that entire period? Every stock that was available, if you bought it and held it to its entirety, right. didn't beat treasuries. Okay, so okay. number one, it's already like buy and hold forever is a very, very difficult uh, proposition. It gets worse though. 4% of companies accounted for all of the gains of the market so if we're if we start from base rates we're looking at approximately a one in 20 probability that we will be the one to find that hidden gem that we can hold forever and and get all of these returns right you're about to sell me on indexing right now by the way (laughs) i was going the same way (laughs) and podcast over see you guys later we're all bogleheads thanks for coming (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that positive skew of the distribution is what lures us all in thinking we can be the one in 20, right? I mean, that is that is the kind of the bitch of it. Um, but I, I understand their logic in wanting to, when they find it, you just don't let go if you think that you found that company. But like you said about Coke, I mean, if you were to describe a company that had maybe like one of the most unbelievable moats, you know, the amount that they could spend on advertising compared to anyone else, the, uh, the, just the actual like psychographics of, of, or physiological response to Coke of the sweetness with the saltiness, you know, the, the hyper palatability of it, um, their distribution network, like they have so many advantages and yet they couldn't, if you, you look at the numbers from uh, 99 to today, and not only has the stock done poorly, which it, it's it's got, if you count uh, dividends, uh, it's 2.5% return from 99 to today. Wow, really? Per I didn't annum? realize it per was year that low. Or, or altogether? Per oh, annum, no, yeah. Per okay. year, yeah. And then, but the business That's with inside, dividends included? Yeah. The dividend inside... Low. Well, this was according to Rishi. He sent me a okay. spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. He's pretty solid. Yeah. Um, hi, Rishi. The uh, the other part was that the the revenue and net income has only grown at three and a half percent. So you have the in, the business fundamentals inside of it haven't grown like you would have ever thought for this compounder, right? Yeah. So, it's, what's the uh, issue? Is it changing? People don't like the sugar. Is that the issue? People getting away from the sugar. I think it's sugar. I think um, kombucha. There's there's so many different options now. Like you go to the store and it's like 
there's a you know twenty five thousand choices of what to drink. Um, I, I don't I mean, know. Also, some of it was the valuation re-rating downward, right? So I mean, All the business it. has to grow a lot to catch up to that valuation degradation uh, or re-rating downward. Um, like, so we had one of the mailbag questions was how do you how like I read a lot and how do I figure out how to invest, right? Um, my perception of how traditional value works is I see the world today and I'm trying to buy what I know today for a lower price than I think it's worth. And growth is definitely a component of what something is worth today, but I am less certain in what is on the come. So maybe I'm less willing to pay for the growth than someone else that feels more certain where I think I would be uncomfortable um, in in Acri's shoes, at, at least without really living it, I guess. And maybe I should try. I don't know. That's why it's like so in my head. But is how do you prevent yourself from becoming a frog in the boiling water, so to speak? And how do you know when there's enough degradation in the business to actually get out? And just a lot of it feels um, amorphous to me at that for yeah. lack of a better term, I hope that's the right word. But. What if you think about it this way? Like it's really hard to find those high quality businesses when they're selling at bargain prices, right? That just, it's it's hard to get them. So when you get one, you just, you, that's your big bet for that year. You take that position and then you just let that run and come hell or high water, you just hold on to that. And then you spend your time looking for the next big opportunity. You know, I, I think for most people who've got an income that are looking for something to invest, that's that's a pretty good way of doing it. If you've got a fixed amount of capital in a fund that you have to redeploy, that's a much more difficult proposition, right? You you, you don't you, you don't have any more income to rely on. You kind of got to then then I think you've got to be thinking about at least trimming. Yeah, yeah, well, I think that's the the studies that you've published in the past and the and deep value and whatnot. I think that value outperforms if you rotate on a year-to-year basis and where it has to be quite as often as that but i think you do need to 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 churn it a little bit right and then i think like the acri and ensemble and probably bluegrass i'm not sure but view of the world is buy these great businesses and if you hold them long enough then you can outperform as long as you're paying a reasonable multiple the way that i do what I do is I just need to understand what I'm applying to the asset that I'm applying it to um, and really be able to understand it. And as far as the question goes, I would just say read a lot of different investors. I mean, I've learned more. I started out, I was only reading like Buffett and Graham, and I feel like I wasn't really growing. And then I started to pay attention to guys like Bill Miller. And I mean, thankfully, Twitter has opened my eyes to a lot of different ways of thinking and now i can at least identify why people are taking positions well let so. me ask you this if you we know how hard it is to find that that company that can redeploy capital at high rates has a good management that won't mess things up uh and maybe even has some reasonable multiple and you you found all of those things that you believe in why would you tell anyone about it like i feel like this is a secret you that up. you never want to tell i mean you're yeah, I don't know. You filled I, up. I you mean, want the glory? Yeah. No, I want to be able to buy even more if I can. 
But there's well, probably it depends like, how big it is. If you take away that one of the elements that you said then was a reasonable PE, if you take away that and you say, let's just identify, like, let's identify the best 100 companies globally. Like, there's probably only 80 to 100 companies globally that fit those other criteria, right? Where they've got that sustainable high, like, they're just going to grow for the foreseeable future. It's hard uh, once you're in those to, you've got to wait around for another one to kind of get cheap. And they tend to, I think that more likely is what happens is they all get cheap at the same time because you've got to be yeah. crash or something like that. Or there's something that happens in the business that brings into question their ability to keep on doing what they have been doing. Like that's the really hard thing, right? They get cheap right at the time that the single thing that you like about them is now in question. Question, right. Yeah, yeah well, and that's like to pay that, you know, in... I think I mean Buffett was buying that at what eight to eleven times earnings, uh, depending Coke. on what you. No Amex in the Amex. when he really went big on it. I mean that's eight to eleven times earnings does not describe much of today's universe of compounders, right? Yeah, no. I Chipotle. I mean I don't I don't know. It's it's definitely not Amex, but when they had that scare. I, my whole theory was this is going to break people's habit of going to Chipotle. I mean, I was obviously wrong, but I was concerned that they were going to lose the habitual purchase. So I stayed away from that that sell-off, and in retrospect, that was a mistake. But to your point, how do you know when something's a permanent change and when it's not? I don't know. It's judgment, and you probably find out about the people that judged correctly and don't hear about the ones that judged wrong. That's right. It's a it's a survivorship <laughs> bias game. Huge survivorship yeah. bias. So, uh, should we move on to my topic? Sure. Uh, Justin Mallory uh, on Twitter, NBA uh, cattle farmer, great Twitter account. Uh, he was looking at so he's doing some analysis on Buffett. So Buffett, everybody knows Buffett's got 128 billion dollars in cash. Some very large portion of that is float that can't be used for acquisitions it has to it's supporting liabilities that aren't you know that are insurance liabilities so they do this analysis where they say basically um he can spend let's say he can spend some 20 percent of it and then you can layer about 50 percent more or you debt can that can be half of your purchase price so they get to about 50 billion and then you go through the list of stuff that he has invested in in the past and what he might buy and so they they say uh, so. The market cap has to be between ten to fifty billion. P under twenty. He's saying U.S. domiciled here. Price to free cash flow under ten. Return on investment over ten percent. So then the screen returns an error because there are no. Uh... <laughs> well, and then he said, "Kick you out the financials." You have one company, sir. So here's the list. It's a pretty short list. It's funny. United Rentals tickers URI or Synchrony Financial. Because he already owns that in the, Synchrony, yeah, Synchrony he's got a position in. In the, that's right. So that's that's a high on the list. Discover, Southwest Airlines, which is Love, HPQ, which is not the enterprise. That's the the printer side of the business. Delta Airlines, which we know he's got a little holding in already. Valero, V L O Capital One C O F. So I thought it was kind of interesting. I just. It's Any, all like financials and capital-intensive crap businesses. Well, well here's the, here's the <laughs> thing. Like, that looks a lot like my portfolio, to be, to, to be perfectly honest. It's not very Buffett-like. Yeah. It's hard to find cheap stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, Amen. you got to stretch. I was talking to somebody that owns parking garages this weekend, and we were just talking about what valuations have done. And 
he's done really well over the past five years or so. Uh, he goes in and he helps people optimize their parking spaces and he takes equity positions in them. And I asked him what's gone on lately. Um, and he said the valuations are just sort of where they're at, you know, like they've just sort of plateaued. And is that a permanent high plateau? Well, in Chicago, he said the equity is coming down quite a bit. Um, there's a you know, it's very market specific because who's going to you don't want a lot of permitting, but you want growth in the population. So it's sort of um, I, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting asset class that he said, you know, the valuation seems stretched and I don't know how much upside we have. That's sort of how I feel about most of what I look at. I'm like, yeah, this is pretty rich. It could work, but a lot of things have to go right. I saw uh, an analysis on Uber. They said that the Uber, the, sh the share price now is where people were investing in 2014. Hmm. So there's been, if you were, you thought you were a private equity, you're a VC investing in 2014 in Uber, you would think that you probably hit it out of the park, wouldn't you? Yeah. Right. It sounds like it. It's flat. Well, yeah. How's it done from its IPO? Not, did it have any run up and then back down? I think it came out pretty flat. Pretty I'm stale. not sure. Yeah. I think that was the beginning of the uh the old bust here in the Hey, it's up three percent today. So it's got that going for it. Yeah, it, it IPO'd at forty one and it's at thirty two. So That's probably one of the better performed IPOs of that class. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a couple of months Peloton would give anything to have that. Yeah, Peloton was up a little bit last time I looked. It's up 2%. The day of junk. <laughs> it's a very tough market. If you're a disciplined investor, it's a very, very tough market to get sufficient cash flow and earnings for the dollars that you're spending. Uh, and I, I think and I, the only people I think who are sort of doing well in this market are people who believe that the growth is much more – like people who have – accepted that we're going to have much higher growth for a much longer period of time who can uh, you know believe that and then stick that into the models and pay up have done very well but i can't do that they've been right so far they right? have it's, yeah that's, uh, that's it's what i'm saying no matter how long yeah i don't mean to so be critical i may have said this before but i sort of wondered after the financial crisis, you didn't have a lot of capitalized competitors. I wonder as we get deeper into sort of the recovery. I mean, I know it's 10 years, but do more, does more competition pop up as sort of people's, I don't know, either get uh, more confident again or now they're balanced. Hasn't the land grab been kind of, isn't it the land and expand? Isn't that kind of over now though in a lot of sectors? I, mean, I don't know. There's no competitor to Uber or Lyft now, right? That's that that game's over. Yeah, but there could be. There was a company via. I w I have no loyalty to either of those companies. It's I could price care competition, less. right? That's right. And Just so they're the, the low cost. Price. They got the biggest network, low, low cost operator. That's it. Everybody shits all over my airline thesis, but they like Uber and Lyft. And I'm like, this is the same thing, guys. It's just a little different. Well, I've been pitching Southwest. I mean, I'm a believer in that too. I right? saw that. So I, I think that Southwest is interesting because it's. You know, the 737 MAX, the Boeing issue, is hurting them more than it's hurting everybody else. They're the biggest operator. They rely on the 737 MAX. Have a look at that. Like, the financials in it are phenomenal. It's a great business. It's still an airline, but it's a great airline. I shouldn't say it's a great business. It's a great airline. It's really... <laughs> yeah. 
Is this like the horse that can count as a good mathematician? That's, that's right. It's a, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> How right. How dare you? But it's still like it's a it's a twenty or well, twenty eight billion dollar market cap. Last time I looked, they've they've earned um, you know returns like twenty four percent return on invested capital, which is down from thirty seven like about five years ago. They've used all of their free cash flow over the last five years to retire stock and pay out a little dividend. So it's actually cheaper now on a price to book value basis. You know, and I know that that's got its own problems, but on a book value basis, it's cheaper now than it was when Buffett took a swing at the basket. I like it. I, I'm looking like an idiot at the moment, but I think it's I like I like the stock. I bet the basket is cheaper than it was when he took a swung a swing. I mean, American has just gotten killed for some good reason. But what, Delta, what's the reason? What, is it is it seven three seven max? No, I mean, they just have way too much leverage, and they run a pretty crappy airline. I, I, they need to pay down their, their leverage. And they don't think they do, but it's clear that they do. Um, you know, it, It's a hard argument to make. We, we don't have too much debt because we have a big revolver behind us, so in a downturn, we have $7 billion to draw. It's like, okay, well, that's just more debt, man. Eventually, you got to pay this back. Like... <laughs> So yeah. also and that's those can say. disappear potentially. Yeah, well, that's what, that's exactly what I was going to. As as the <laughs> dead guy, Bill, like how how solid are those things? Can they can they yank them if it gets? They they say this is a market. This is a material adverse change that's gone. Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I would need to look at all their covenants. Depends and stuff. on the specific I, terms. Yeah, and I think I think the way that they do most of their financing. Is there so much capital out there that are that's willing to take an asset-backed loan on an air, no. like an, an actual aircraft? That I bet that yeah, but I I bet that the actual true leverage to the operating entity is lower than the headline leverage screens. Um, but I I just it's not a game. I'm just it's hard yeah. enough to it's hard enough to bet on an airline. Like why would you bet on the most levered one out there? Other than that's where Upside all the juice leverage. is. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, you're a gambling just... man. I'm just imagining the Monopoly guy, and he and he's pulling his pockets and turning them inside out, and like, oh, sorry, I don't have any money to give you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an issue, or it can be. You so get into trouble with revolvers sometimes if they're if there's like a leverage covenant, and so a company will say, you know, we have a six hundred million dollar revolving credit facility. But they can only draw two hundred million before they breach their leverage covenant. So it's really a two hundred million dollar facility. But some of them won't exactly tell you that. We've got a gigantic mailbag this week. So Big mailbag. Sh should we start? Let me just see if I can find uh, where it all starts. So I'll just kick. I've got one here. Okay. For people who want to park their wealth in a Vanguard-style index, what alternatives to market cap weighting, if any, should they be considering? Are the three of you for or against market cap weighting? Will fees of ETFs that use alternative index methods be driven down to zero anytime soon? Let's start with the first one. What alternatives are there to market cap weighting? Based on what I've read, any of them are better than market cap weighting. Except I mean, over the last few years. You probably years. know better. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, there's a um, there's an inverse market cap yeah, fund. Yeah, I was just going to say that. 
uh, RVRS, I think reverse is the, is the ticker, which is run by my, uh, my sub, so I should just disclose that, but, uh, my sub advisor, um, that's a, they, they literally take the inverse of, so the biggest market cap is reversed. If you test that, it tests phenomenally. It just hasn't worked over the last few years. Hmm. Are there yeah. certain periods that it tests better or is it over most time periods it tests better? It tests better over the full data set. The times when it doesn't work are the times when, you know, value doesn't work. It's this, yeah. when you, when the market gets this, uh, you know, when the market is frothy and going up really hard, then you want to be in the big momentum stocks. Yeah, yeah the nifty 50 style has got to be the... But that like game only works until best. it doesn't. Yeah, no it, breadth to the market. So are, are you guys for against market cap waiting? Against, I'm guessing. I, I, think, I think I'm against, yeah. I would recommend Joel Greenblatt's uh, book. He says the big secret, you know, that for the small investor, he tears apart market cap waiting pretty well. Equal waiting outperforms. Well, yeah. And when I just think about, uh, you know, if I, let's just take Berkshire as an example. And the more that Buffett owns, the less that the, that the market weighted or market cap weighted index wants to own. Uh, you know, when you're doing these float adjustments, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like, right. Like it <laughs> yeah, seems crazy. totally 180 out of logic. Yeah. It's crazy to underweight founder led and founder owned companies like the, that's who i want to bet with you'd be like the index that that invests more in those guys would be a better index you would think that's right yeah that's a great idea for an etf uh that that question FNDR, was fndr that's your ticker what, what, do, what do you call it fndr right founder founder yeah that's a good one you i'm a little, sure meb you already has that locked up damn yeah, you meb you gotta you gotta <laughs> Don't, don't let Meb listen to this podca podcast. I think there's no there's no danger of that. Uh, that was from Jason in Alberta, Canada. <laughs> we Meb never make one Meb's of the five. top uh, top podcast of the week. Huh. Yeah, we have to. We we, we haven't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I haven't not. seen it. I'm gonna submit us this week. <clears throat> Shout out to Meb. How are you? <laughs> uh, I got I got it, I got one from Techno Slug in Eastern Europe. This is a big one. So. Uh, what are your thoughts on the concept of margin of safety and beating the market returns? It seems I'm there's a conflict it. in the purpose of the concept. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sorry. I'm in. So uh, it's, a, it's a long question. So, But it, are they in conflict? That's the question. No, you just got to be patient and then you got to swing and then you got to be right. So I think if you can do those three things then you can outperform with less risk. It's just, uh, it's a lot harder in practice than it is in theory, right? I mean, there's, everything sells off. It's, I mean, I'm sure there is some stock that has never sold off somewhere, but... Uh, yeah, it's been I, around I'm, for like six months. It's been listed yeah, for six months. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, it's... But sitting there with cash in your pocket is really, really difficult, especially when things are going up. And then when that event happens that gives you an opportunity you got to be able to swing i i don't think that you can look at most things most of the time and say oh there's this huge margin of safety in this and i'm going to be fine I, I just don't think that's how the world works i think that's right i think the market is is generally pretty good at pricing things in general 
Um, my understanding of the question when I read it was that I think what he was getting at was like if the margin doesn't the return profile actually increase along with the margin of safety as the price that you buy goes down. Um, and I I've always thought that was like kind of a logical explanation that academia tended to like totally whiff on. Um, I, I've heard Buffett talk about it a little bit, uh, but but it's uh, it does seem very logical to me that the, the more the price goes down, not only the more margin of safety I feel, but also the more potential re- return that I see coming. It sort of breaks uh, so. that idea that risk and return go together because it's the, as the you know it, all else being equal, if you're paying if you've got t- the same company available at two different prices, the cheaper price gives you better returns and a greater margin of safety. Well, let's take it to a very logical extreme of or illogical extreme of <clears throat> if I could pay a penny per share for a a great company, let's let's just say Microsoft, do I think I would make more money or less than at 10 cents a share or a dollar? I think I'm going to make a lot more and I'm going to take less risk at a penny than I am at a dollar or a hundred dollars. Right. Yep. Good answer. Okay. Moving on. Easier said than done, though. That's the problem. That's right. right. It's always <laughs> yeah. the, the, the the thesis is – this is the issue that I have is that the thesis is always the thing that comes into question. Like your reason for owning it is the thing that – everybody is looking at the same data. And you just have to figure out better than everybody else does that it, it's not an issue. And you, you buy it or you just ignore it completely and you say, ah, it'll be all right and you buy it. And it works and out. You, you have to be right and you have to have everyone agree with you, but later, right? Eventually. <laughs> Eventually, Who, whose line is that? Is that Greenblatt? Jim, Jim Grant. Jim Grant. That's right. Yeah. Sorry, Jim. I know you listen. <laughs> okay. Number three. Uh, as an early investor, I, I read and listen about so many great investors who have different strategies. Buffett, Huber, Acri, Graham, etc. How do the three of you stick with an investment strategy? Thanks, Thomas Duncan. No offense, but Huber made the Mount Rushmore there. Yeah, Huber for... can write, man. Why, no, I know. why He's are you going good. to I'm Huber? Just, I'm just joking. Sorry, John. I know you're listening too. Jeez. Come on, man. I'm going to get John on the pod. I keep on saying that. I, I'm a big fan of John's. John's I, great. I am too. I was just teasing. I read his article about that the share price moving around relative to the fundamentals of JP Morgan once a year. And I say it about five times a year. Yeah, John's great. So how do you stick with your strategy? What, what, what makes you, what, how do you not slip around and do something else? I can't say I don't. I mean, I in the last in the last year I've owned Netflix, JW Nordstrom, uh, Delta. Like, I mean, I you that's, could argue that's some psychological profile there. Yeah, you could argue that there's some style drift in that. Um, you I know think- what? So my dad and I were talking about this, and I think that the Nordstrom was never this argument that it's going to be this business that no one else sees. It was an argument that the market is pricing this thing like it's going to die tomorrow. And with the with the balance sheet, you could take the working capital out of it. I mean, I get that there's problems with this, right? But like uh, it's not in runoff, so you can't just liquidate it. It's not the right way to value it. But there's just a lot of things that are going on in that entity that I thought it was too cheap. Um, Delta, I'm really comfortable with where I think it's going to be in 10 years. And Netflix was a little bit more speculative. I mean, they're different lenses that 
I think you got to look at different investments through. Uh, to the listener, you know, my, my best advice if you're trying to figure out who you are is study these different people, try to see what they own and try to figure out why they own them. I mean, I think I, I mentioned them earlier. Bill Miller's portfolio is really, really interesting to look at and try to back into why do you think this guy owns what he owns? Um, that like go have fun doing that. Right. And then figure it out and whatever resonates with you buy What's, or don't. What, what I mean, do you, what do you take from advice. Bill's, uh, portfolio? Oh man, he's, he has crazy stuff. So like he's long American airlines because I think that his general thesis is the leverage. He was early on it. So, um, but I think he still holds it because, he sees the the debt pay down accruing value to the equity, and I think he thinks they're going to be very free cash flow fo- um, positive going forward. He owned Restoration Hardware super early, um, so I think he was willing to make a bet on change. He pitched ADT, which is arguably an overlevered home security company being attacked by Google. He pitched that in like September last year, and it's ripped. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways that he sees the world. How and is he's Google also, going after ADT? Well, like they're doing all these home, yeah. Doesn't like Amazon all these home, Well, all of them are coming. Right, like that, okay. that's sort of the theory. Oh, I mean, Alarm.com is a cool company that sort of monitors a lot of your home stuff. Um, and then what else? He'll take a swing on a biotech. Like that guy sees. I think he's very good in general at seeing risk and return and measuring it within his perception of outcomes. I think that's why, sorry, sorry, after you. I was going to say my advice to a young investor would be get an investment journal going, write down your, not only your predictions about like, Oh, I think I'm going to make money here, but write down your predictions about the business itself and keep score for yourself. I think that's you have to close that feedback loop to yep. really start learning about yourself, about what you understand, about how the world is when it throws you curveballs and what you can learn from them. You have to get the reps in, but I think you can learn much faster if you keep score. Uh, and I, I, unfortunately, I, I don't think that that's actually common practice because it takes a little bit of work and it's annoying to do that. So yeah, start a blog, do it publicly. I actually like that. and I Do it anonymously I, if it makes you nervous. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I don't like is I don't like doing public pitches. Uh, that, but, but the AB and that pitch is really like rubbed me the wrong way. You've got to a point now where the, the, the issue for you is consistency bias, right? Like you want to be able to put a position on, change your mind, take it off, and you feel like yeah. you've made this public commitment to the position. If you're just starting out, you know, there aren't going to be that many people reading your stuff. No it's mostly cares. you yeah. reading it. The point of writing these things down is so when you come back to it five or six or ten months later or a year later, you remember why you bought this thing because you look at a lot of stuff and you just sometimes you forget why you're in something. It just becomes three letters. It just becomes a ticker and then you can't remember what you did. And you need to be able to hold yourself accountable. You thought this and you made a mistake for this reason. Then that goes in your list of things of mistakes that you have to be careful not to make in the future. And it's very easy to look back and think, oh, yeah, I knew that already, or I knew that was going to happen. Right. Well, you, you didn't write it down, so maybe you actually didn't know it. And we're, very, we're all susceptible to painting a bullseye around wherever our arrow landed. As to what style, one of the, I love reading, going back and reading Michael Burry's letters. I think it's sort of an under, um, 
recognize part of Burry's uh, skill set that very early on he he said, you know, you can buy net nets, you can buy these sort of earnings power type companies that are just cheap on some sort of PE multiple or something like that, or you can buy these growth companies. And I reckon I recognize that that you're going to get more sure returns out of the net nets. And the, the really good compounders are going to be very hard to find. So they're not going to be very many of them. Net nets are hard to find too. So in the middle is going to be the bulk of what you do. And he wrote down all of these positions and he was very early on, he was good across all three of those areas. And so what happens in the market is sometimes growth gets very expensive and you want to be doing net nets or, comp, or, or the earnings power or, or whatever the case may be. You want to be doing the thing that is screaming at you and if you've only got one skill set and you can't move on to the other ones, then then you, you're limited. Yeah, having some some va- flavors of value diversity. And avoid the, I- the circle of competence thing. I, I, it's sort of a thing that I, I kind of hate. Like, I recognize why Buffett uh, Buffett does it, and I think it's great for if once you're an experienced investor, yeah, have a circle of competence. What he's saying sometimes, I think, when he says I can't figure it out, what he means is no one can figure this out. Like airlines <laughs> yeah. might be one of them. No one can figure this out. For a young investor to say that thing's out of my outside my circle of confidence is ri- confidence is ridiculous. Get yeah. it and figure it out. Read it. Read everything in the industry. You'll figure it out. No, I th- I think that's right. And and you know if you're young and you're starting out, you got to make a bet. There there is no truer statement in my opinion that you don't know what you own until you own it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, researching something and then living something is just completely different. Yeah, you so have to buy it. Feel that, you know, feel the emotion and, and figure out, you know, do I, if I believe in deep value and I'm not willing to own the, the business risk of GameStop, is there another way that maybe there's a product out there that can solve my need? I don't know, maybe, right? Or, Maybe I just want to index in the S&P or maybe I want to, like, I don't know, but you got to do it to get to the answer that you need. When it, yeah, when I think paper trading doesn't get you there because the emotion is not the same. I mean, it's it's a whole different ball of wax when it's, and I would, I'd probably want to pay early cheap tuition if possible yeah. and not wait till you actually have, you can roast a, a decent amount of money. <laughs> I, I also think like, you know, I mean, it's, I, somewhat overdone i think but getting to know who you are is really important i mean there's a lot of guys out there that i that have done well that use technicals that use momentum that sort of identify trends and they've done well for themselves it's not the game i would like to play but that's fine like there's plenty of money out there for people to make it's just don't i have found i have made mistakes when i've tried to be somebody else Mm. Just uh, just before we go on, there's, there's no more questions from the mailbag, but one thing that I did see a lot of at the end of this year, every it seems like every Twitter user who I follow has had an absolute blockbuster year. like Victory laps. 70% to like 115%. That feels to me like the that's the 90% confidence range. So if you're if you're the median being like 100% return for the year, if you're uh, if you're not 100% return for the year, then you're bullshit. <laughs> yeah that uh that's been interesting for me i've been struggling a little bit with that um andrew walker wrote a really good blog post at yet another value blog about 
why he thought that that was not a good practice. And I'm going to violate it because I'm going to write a letter here in a little while once all this uh, peacocking sort of goes away (laughs) and I can be a little bit rational about it. But it was interesting because I was really proud of the year that I put up. And then it's like, oh, man, I'm just sort of a, you know, just a turd waiting along the the world. (laughs) I'd be curious to see a decomposition of the returns, uh, whether it was, you know, was it was it business fundamentals that changed in the last year or was it the the sentiment that that carried you? Uh, was it? I don't think it was dividends, probably, right? So there's only a couple ways to, I to think figure out a, what the returns are. It was a particular. Also, I'd like to know, to be perfectly candid, if it's just bullshit or not. I think they're real. I, I think that you know. I think that. Well, I'm sure some are. But what do you get out of telling everybody that you got a return that you didn't? Like no one cares. It's like oh, Nobody. good for you, wonderful. I think no, they're there's, real. There's some fund of funds looking to to snatch you up. But they would right want to look the at the Twitter waiver wire. They're going to so gonna... you got to have Twitter returns. <laughs> but that does happen. There are lots of guys who've got their jobs. And I know I can think of at least two uh, who've got jobs from the quality of the research that they were doing and publishing on Twitter or, or on a blog rather than, you know, the, um, the returns that they were generating. Let's say it was sort of more the quality of the thought process than the returns. I just think, but what, what, is it, what it tells me is that it has been a very good year for uh for like a uh value guys who are you know more of a sort of dcf style value guys like it's been a good year for those guys and that's good they should be congratulated i will tell you one thing that makes me pretty nervous is i have my ira that i do not treat as nicely as i treat my like true portfolio (laughs) and that thing this is your burner account yeah pretty much but i mean i think I think it was like 45 or 46% that I put up in that. And that, I mean, there's some options in that, but it makes me nervous when the account that I am less prudent with returns. That's always going to be the case. So in a good year, yeah. your more levered, silly account is going to do better than your more careful account, right? And in a bad year, yeah. you would hope that your, your more sensible account does better. You would. I that's why you have the silly PA. So you get all the gamble out in the silly PA and then you do all of the, the sensible stuff in your, in your main account. Yeah. You've got the account that you take to the racetrack, you take to the casino and, uh, that one is defiled and you don't care if you blow it all up because that's probably what's going to happen. And then you have the one that you've got to live on or retire on. And that's where you, that's where you actually sit down and become an, become an auditor and an accountant and you do sensible things in that one. I'll tell you what's defiling the uh, the retirement account right now is those Tesla call spread that I sold. This, those things are just like taking on water every day, saying, "Please stop." Oh, that thing is it's a been beast, amazing, I say. isn't it? It's, it's what just is it? It's a over run. seventy. Was it seventy-five billion dollar market cap now or something? Yeah, it's just been brutal. <sighs> Unreal. I mean, like, come on, bulls, take a rest. Not, not lucky, not, not none of us here was smart enough to be short that for a quarter and a little bit. Oh wait, that was me. Damn. Yeah, let's see. yeah, it's at four seventy today. I mean, that's that's an eighty four, eighty five billion dollar market Eight. cap. What did I tell you guys? I said at ninety billion, I start losing money. Well, we're getting there close, like quick. Good on Elon. What a machine. Back against the wall, got it done. Got to respect that. Do I or do I have to get mad because I'm losing? I uh, don't hate the player, mate. Hate the game. No, I agree. I agree. All yeah, faults are mutual, unforced errors. Uh, friend who 
he likes to have one kind of spite trade per year always on and it's just something that like either annoys him or like <clears throat> like i don't want to live in a world where i'm not short that or or you know whatever it is and uh tesla's a could be for some people a uh that type of thing where you're just like this I can't live in a world where this makes so so little sense. I that think I you should like that idea. I think well, I, I I'm going to take the reverse. I would say I think you need to fade yourself. If there's something mm. that you just hate that it cu- colors the way you think about it, then take the opposite position. Yeah, yeah go full Costanza. right? That's the hedge. Or maybe you put maybe you, you you figure out a way to get there. So you you put your main position on the way you really feel, and then you just hedge it with something that if you're completely wrong, it pays off massively. Yeah, like a, I like, like that. Market cap weighted index. Yeah, well, that would have helped all of us this year, I think. Right, maybe not. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> no, I like that. That's a good idea. All right, gents. I think we've come up on time. Uh, we'll be around in, next week. Thanks very much. It's been fun. So I missed. I missed you guys. Full what a break! It was awful. <laughs> I know. I was like. You know, kind of scratching, like looking for the next last Tuesday when we did the report.